0: Vast and Dehoy, meaties, pirates, pirate supporters, and fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Welcome to Scanner and our first episode of 2019. And what a way to kick off the year. I'm Mark Laren young and I am so psyched about today's episode. It's an epic interview with the ultimate whale warrior and leader of my favorite band of pirates, Sea Shepherd Captain Paul Watson. Scandal listeners probably figure I've got a serious background in science, but the truth is, my background is anything but serious. I toured Canada's half-comedy act called Local Anxiety. Yeah, our specialty was doing comedy about the environment, but science? I had to stop that after I took Chem 11, and my teacher gave me what they used to call back in the day a conditional pass. The condition that I never, ever, ever set foot in another science classroom. So science? Not my thing. But comedy was. And journalism was. And just over 20 years ago, I was writing a story from McLean's, Canada's national news magazine, about cetaceans in captivity at the Vancouver Aquarium. And I thought, I am going to get a quote from the world's most famous whale hugger. So I tracked down Paul Watson, founder of the Sea Shepherd Society and one of the key players in the original Greenpeace missions to save the whales. A guy who had actually risked his life to save whales. And while we were talking, he asked if I had any idea that the Vancouver Aquarium was the first place in the world to ever display a killer whale. And that they had harpooned that whale. And that the guy who ran the aquarium, Murray Newman, had named him Moby Doll. Watson had harpooned me. It took me over 20 years, but I finally told Moby's story in my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. And a few weeks ago, I finally got to offer a proper thank you to Paul Watson at the Friday Harbor Film Festival where they were screening a movie I'd made about Granny and the Southern Resident Orcas, The Hundred-Year-Old Whale, and a movie about the Sea Shepherd, Chasing the Thunder. To make the trip pretty much perfect, both movies picked up awards at the festival. We love you, Friday Harbor. So the captain and I talked in the filmmakers' lounge and I tried not to geek out too much, but seriously, Paul Watson? Rain and I even got to visit his boat. As always, this podcast is brought to you by our heroic podmates who sponsor us through Patreon.com, including Simon McNair, Kara Middleton, Eaglewing, Mike Whitley, MCM, and Yosef Wask. We've had a few people ask to help us out who are keen on Scanna, but not on Patreon, so we just set up a Scanner tip jar at PayPal. We've got links in our show notes and our newsletter. Or you can send us an email to scanapod at gmail.com, and we'll let you know how to send us an e-transfer check. Since everyone knows podcasting and documentaries are all about the big bucks, I wanted to let you know the money we get helps us pay for web hosting space and hard drives, because these interviews take up space online and off, and you're helping us pay for the gear we need to record the interviews, and you're helping us license our music through SoCan, and you're helping us pay honorariums to the awesome co-op students and volunteers who make these podcasts possible. And now eco-warrior Paul Watson on the evolution of the Sea Shepherd Society and what we need to do to save the whales, the oceans, and ourselves. I never could have imagined when I interviewed you for McLean's 20-plus years ago that you were going to pretty much change my life. Hmm. Can you tell me the Moby Doll story as you heard it, remembered it, or... How you heard it.
1: I was living uh, in Vancouver, you know, way back in the 60s there. And uh, so, it was, you know, in fact, my, my biology teacher was uh, at Vancouver City College was uh, Murray Newman's wife. So we had a lot of access to the aquarium back then. It was a really different time. I remember the, they were selling sperm whale teeth in the aquarium that were uh, from the whales being taken at uh, Coal Harbor and uh, Ro- 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 Rose or Ross Whale Station on, on the Queen Charlotte's. But uh, so it was a completely different time. But the reason, uh, Moby, the the first orca, really, they wanted to to kill the orca, in order to uh, have it as a model for a for a sculpture of an orca in front of the Vancouver Aquarium. So the objective was to actually get the sculpture, not actually have a live whale.
0: Kathy Newman actually told me she remembered you as a student and as a really good, curious
1: student. Oh, really? Oh, good. good. Uh, when did you interview her? Because she died, what, last year? I, I think, interviewed her about
0: four or five years ago. Oh, okay. And she, I ended up interviewing her and Murray quite a bit. Oh, okay. And I said, do you have any memories? She went, I just remember he was very curious. He had good questions. Oh, good. So I thought that was very sweet. Now, I gather your first encounter with rock was actually Scanna.
1: Yes, Can Skana. you talk about Scanner? Well, uh... Actually my first encounter was uh, with uh with Paul spong in nineteen sixty nine I ran into Paul spong at u b c and uh, he was talking to me about how uh, he he had to check out a brain uh apparently, you can check out brains at the uh, at u b c real brains and so he's doing a comparative study between uh human brains and uh, all dolphin and orca brains <laughs>
0: did he check out moby doll's brain?
1: he checked out some brain i don't all I know is he was checking out a brain that day <laughs> i don't know what it was
0: oh wow what do you want to do tonight?
1: The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. But uh, anyway, so it was Paul Spong that uh, introduced all of us uh, to Scanna because he was uh, Scanna's trainer. And then uh, he, he rebelled against that because he came to the uh, realization that Scanna was actually studying him. And uh, so he, he was, uh, it was Paul Spong that got Greenpeace involved with the whaling issue.
0: Do you, can you tell me your memories of that? Because that seems like such an amazing shift from being the anti-nuke organization to the Save the Whales and Save the Seals.
1: Well, when Greenpeace started, it was started as the Don't Make a Wave Committee. That was 1969, and it was a coalition of the Sierra Club and uh, the Quakers. And it came together because of nuclear testing in Amchitka Islands called uh, uh yeah, they were, you know, and people still remember the um, the uh, Anchorage earthquake from 63. So yeah. that's why they came up with the name with Don't Make a Wave Committee, because to put that image of a tsunami uh, that happened back in 64 or what, or 63, to put that image in everybody's head of what could happen if they did this testing. Sorry, I guess it was a bit of a scare tactic, really. But uh, the idea that it came from the fact that the Quakers tried to sail a, uh, a boat to Bikini Atoll during the 1956 nuclear testing. And so then the idea came, well, let's do the same here. And so we worked to get a boat together. I remember we had a, con- uh, a concert to raise the money, and that was with Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, and Bill Oakes to to raise that money. And then we finally got the, the money together to, uh, to do the campaign in uh, October and November of 1971. And at one of the early meetings uh, of the Don't Make a Wave Committee, uh, somebody left and flashed a peace sign and uh, and uh, said peace. And Bill Darnell said, "Well, make it a Greenpeace." And uh, Bob Hunter said, "Hey, a great name for the we'll call." It. So the boat became the Greenpeace, and it wasn't until 1972 that they changed the name of the Don't Make a Wave Committee to the Greenpeace Foundation. So in 1974, when Paul Spong brought in this idea of getting involved with the whaling issue. Uh, The Quakers rebelled. They didn't want anything to do with it. So that was the first schism in Greenpeace, was the Quakers left Greenpeace at that time. Jim Bolin and uh, Dorothy Stowe and other people, they left because they didn't really want to be involved in saving whales. When you look at the Quaker history, it makes sense because the Quakers were the whalers of New England. You know yeah. they were the biggest whale killers of them all, really. So, but anyway, so that was the first schism, and so uh, Greenpeace. Thing, you know, Greenpeace wouldn't exist today if it wasn't for Bob Hunter. So it was Bob Hunter who was the one who took the reins from the Don't Make a Wave Committee and made it into the International Greenpeace Foundation.
0: Rex Wilder was telling me that they they talked about. How basically the whales put the green in Greenpeace, and then there were debates about putting the peace back in Greenpeace because of the ship, because there was such a strong shift yeah. to whales and seals.
1: Well, there was. Now, I got Greenpeace involved with the seal campaign. There was a lot of rebellion against that too. A lot of people didn't agree with that. People wanted to save whales, but they didn't want to save seals, and you know, so Greenpeace has gone through a lot of those uh, struggles over you know campaigns that this group doesn't agree with that campaign or whatever.
0: Judean people's front. For the people's front of Judea, Judean people's
1: front. Come, wankers.
0: Now I remember you telling me that when you were working on a ship, it, Coast Guard, I think, mm-hmm. that you were warned by the captain that that if the orcas got sorry that if the killer whales got too close to you, they'd kill you.
1: Oh yeah, that was on board the Canadian Coast Guard vessel Camsel, and uh, we were operating. We were a lighthouse, uh, uh, boy tender, and lighthouse tender. And uh, the captain uh, we saw some orcas and uh, he said, Yeah, I could stay away from them because they kill people and, and I, I thought that well I hadn't heard of anybody being killed by but he said, oh, we don't know extra I have seen people I've seen people being eaten alive by those guys and you know, which wasn't true of course, but you know, it's a story he was telling.
0: Well, I mean, it blows my mind when I've talked to people who are over sixty, over seventy, they told me that they grew up terrified of killer whales.
1: Well also, you know, back at Lloyd Bridges did a show called Sea Hunt in the sixties. And uh, there's a scene where, you know, he's attacked by an orca in there because it's a TV show. So, uh, you know, these kind of things all added up uh, to uh, making people afraid of, uh, afraid of orcas. And, of course, also in um, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, uh, Captain Nemo describes how orcas were murderous creatures and, and everything. So there was a, a lot of mythology that was built up about how extremely uh, dangerous they were.
0: Do you remember the first time you saw a whale?
1: Well, the first time I saw a whale was as a child because I, I I was raised on the Passamaquoddy Bay in New Brunswick, so we saw them all the time.
0: What, what kind would you have seen out in New Brunswick?
1: Oh, well, we would have had humpback whales, blue whales, uh, pilot whales. I mean, wow. you name it, they were over, they were there. I didn't see any sperm whales, but you know, blue but whales. there were a lot of whales back there then.
0: Very cool. Blue whale would be very cool to see. Well, a lot of
1: blue whales on the eastern seaboard.
0: Do you remember the first time you saw Scanna? Do you remember meeting Scanna?
1: Mm, Scanna would have been about, yeah, the first time would have been about 1974, I think. 73 or 74. And uh, actually it was uh, Paul Spong who introduced uh, introduced us to Scanna.
0: And what was that like? What, were, what was the scene like, getting introduced to Scanna?
1: Well, uh, what I remember is Bob Hunter actually uh, getting up close with Scanna, and him and Paul Spong were playing flutes and everything, and and with the, and then suddenly, um, at one point, Scanna came up out of the water and uh, put her teeth on both sides of, uh, of Bob's head and, uh, like, you know, sort of testing the trust in him. And uh, he didn't move back and she pulled back and back into the water. So basically, she was just testing to see if he was going to be afraid of her or not.
0: I've read about that being just a pivotal moment in his life.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Yeah. So
1: my my, my personal experience with where we were with wild orcas off of Bella Bella, and that was in 75, and uh, there was a pod of orcas coming towards us. We were on board the John Cormac, and so three of us jumped in the water in front of them as they were coming towards us, and uh, suddenly we saw them moving towards us, and that gets to be a bit of an intimidating sight, because the thing that's going through my mind is these guys eat sea lions, and they're bigger than we are, and we're right in their path, and... And suddenly they all disappeared, and that it was even more intimidating because now you have no idea where they are. And suddenly they um, they came to the surface right beside us, so close. I reached over and grabbed the dorsal of one of them, was pulled through the water, and um, and then just sort of tumbled off. And it was after that I, I you know I said to myself, well you know you don't go up to a lion in the Serengeti and pet it, but uh, here you are, you can actually touch a an orca in the wild and uh, without any any uh, lethal consequences look over there right there it's a tiger (laughs) that tiger weighs 800 pounds and it could kill a man in 10 seconds i'm gonna touch it
0: that's just amazing to me right well
1: no orc has ever attacked any human being in the wild ever
0: no well i mean keep having people ask me that and i'm like no
1: you know, the only other thing I ever read about it was that Captain Scott was down in Antarctica and three of his men were, the um, orcas came up under the ice and broke the ice up under their feet and threw them off their feet, but then quickly realized that they weren't penguins and left them alone.
0: Well, what I thought it was was they, the, the dogs would bark like seals. And I ran that by John Ford and he'd wondered, you know, because I thought, okay, they're used to seals. Seals bark, dogs bark. And they were up at his team and you know, they were hearing a sound that would have sounded a lot like seals. They could, be, man, could be. Any other impressions of Scanna when you, because one of the things that hits me so much is the way these whales seem to communicate and Paul Spong talked about Scanna training him. And again, looking for that fear and trying to get the fear out of him.
1: Well, I think the experiment, I think that was most impressive was that he was, uh, Paul was teaching Scanna, you know, different signs and signals, and then she was getting them right, and then at some point she uh, started deliberately getting them wrong, you know, sort of saying, and he was really puzzled by that. Well, why would she suddenly do this? And it was just like, she was probably bored or whatever, but she said, look, I'm tired of playing with a game. I don't want to do with it. It's hard to say why, but uh, definitely, definitely there was a shift in uh, in how Scanna was perceiving the the game.
0: And that's kind of amazing to me um uh, when you were starting to meet whales at what point did you went, did you click onto the idea of how intelligent they were was what? there a moment when you was it the moment in the water or was was there a moment that you went oh wow well from i
1: think from 1975 uh you know scanna the whales at uh you know, we encountered in the wild uh, sperm whales and things like this, uh, plus reading a lot about them at the time. And so it'd be around the 74, 75 time that that realization came to me. And uh, most importantly, uh, in June of 75, when we had that encounter with the Soviet whaling fleet, and the whale, the sperm whale that was harpooned, could have uh, killed us but didn't. And uh, I could see that it had deliberately made a a decision not to kill us.
0: And can you sh- can you share that story? You mentioned it the other night at the screening, and I just thought it sounded amazing.
1: Yeah, we had come up with this idea to uh, you know to save whales by putting our bodies between the harpoons and uh, and the whales. And as I always jokingly say, it was because we were reading a lot of Gandhi at the time, and uh, we felt that that would be the way to do it. And then we suddenly, in June of seventy five, uh, we were found ourselves in front of a Soviet whaling vessel that was Baylor barreling down on us at full speed and there was eight uh, sperm whales in front of us fleeing for their life and and uh, every time i was you know uh piloting the zodiac and every time i blocked the harpooner you know it would stop them it worked for about 25 minutes and then the captain of the uh of the soviet vessel came down the catwalk and screamed into the into the ear of the harpooner then he turned looked at us brought his finger across his throat like that and smiled and that's when i realized now, Gandhi's not going to work on this one. And then, a few moments later, there was this horrendous explosion, and the and the harpoon flew over our heads and slammed into the backside of one of the whales. It was a female whale in the pod, and the largest whale suddenly hit the water with his tail, dove, and swam right underneath of us and threw himself at the water, out of the water straight at the harpooner. But they were ready with him with an unattached harpoon, and. Uh, struck him at point blank range so as he was in the water you know just in agonies you know thrashing about on the surface there's blood everywhere and that's when i caught his eye and then he dove and came at us underwater and then came up out of the water at an angle so the next thing to do was come down right on top of us and uh, and it was that at that moment when i looked into the eye of this whale coming up out of the water i could even see my own reflection in the eye that's how close it was and uh that I could see that the whale, or I could feel really, that the whale understood what we were trying to do. Because the easiest thing for him to do was to come forward, but he could see the effort to go back and slide back beneath the surface and and die. Uh, So he could have killed us and chose not to do so. So that played a big part in me dedicating my life to protecting whales. But as I sat there, the sun was going down. It was in the middle of the Soviet whaling fleet, and it... You know, it occurred to me what I uh, also I saw in that I was pity not for himself but, but for us that we could take life so thoughtlessly and why, why were we killing those whales? And uh, for the Soviets it was for spermaceti oil, which was highly prized for the development of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I said to myself, here we're we're killing these incredibly beautiful, socially complex, sentient creatures for the pur- purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And and that's when it struck me. We're, we're insane. As a species, we're insane. And that's when I said, I'll never do anything um, for for people. I'm, I'm going to do this for for them. And they are going to be our clients.
0: I gather that, I think, I know Bob Hunter said this, I'm not sure if you did as well, that in the early um, expeditions to save the whales, talked about we work for Scannon.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's exactly how we felt on that but the whales were our were our clients. I remember one time Bob did a lecture at the University of Manitoba. He went up to the podium, switched on a tape recorder, played whale sounds for 20 minutes, and then switched it off, and he said, yeah, I think that pretty much explains everything, and then left. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. The idea of whales, as that, that's the one thing that's always struck me about you versus Greenpeace, is the fact that I always get the impression that you're choices for the whales, that, that you're not calculating in human politics on the same levels. No, never.
1: You know, when we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet, that's when I had a conversation with John Prizel. you know, who came at to me up at the, one of the International Whaling Commission meetings, and he said <laughs> right to my face, he said, you know, I just want to let you know what you did in Reykjavik was, uh, was um, reprehensible, criminal, unforgivable, and uh, an embarrassment to the entire movement. I said, yeah, well, so what? And he said, well, I think you should know what, uh, what we think. And I said, John, we didn't sink those whaling ships for you or for Greenpeace or for anybody else. We sank them for the whales. So find me a whale that disagreed with what we did and I'll promise I'll never do it again.
0: Winning? Is that what you think it's about? I'm not trying to win. I'm not doing this because I want to beat someone or because I hate someone or because, because I want to blame someone. It's not because it's fun. God knows it's not because it's easy, it's not even because it works, because it hardly ever does. I do what I do because it's right! Because it's decent. And above all, it's kind. It's just that. Did you have a connection with animals before all this happened? Was there, was there something?
1: Well, I, uh, I started, uh, activism for animals when I was 11, uh, rescuing beavers, uh, from leg hole traps. Uh, in New Brunswick, so because uh, um, I had spent the summer swimming with a family of beavers, and the next year when I went back, there were no beavers, and found out no trappers had taken them all, and that made me pretty angry. And uh, I also got in trouble. I shot a kid in the in the ass with a BB gun who was about to kill a bird. And I thought it was funny because Dixie Lee Ray, the former governor of Washington, uh, she said, uh, evidence of Watson's insanity can be found that when he was uh, uh, 12 or so, he um, shot a boy in the ass who was about to kill a bird. And any boy that would shoot a, another boy to protect a bird has to be insane. And I said, well, you know, in my neighborhood, every boy shot every other boy with a BB gun. I just happened to have a practical reason to do it.
0: <laughs> nice. Why Was she calling you insane?
1: Oh yeah, no,
0: like when? Like, what was the context for her? Oh,
1: it was in, her, and it was her book called "Trashing the Planet." Wow, <laughs> which was an anti-environmentalist book. Sorry, yeah, called "Trashing the Planet," but it was called it was an anti-environmentalist. And she book. was in favor of trashing. The oh yeah, planet. she was Dixie Lee Ray, former governor of Washington. Yeah, she was. Uh, she was like. Uh, she was like Donald Trump. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. No, I don't know much about. No, her. She was all pro logging, pro mining, pro you know. Hunting all of that,
0: so. So, was there, like, did your parents teach you to love animals? Like, was there anything? Well, my mother
1: was, and my grandfather were very... My my father was uh, was completely the opposite. He was a hunter in that, so. But, uh, but no, it was mainly my own, uh, you know, initiative. Also, I was raised in a fishing village, so I could see the, you know, how destructive the fishing industry was. I didn't have much respect for fishermen. You know, they shot at everything. You know, they threw garbage over the side. They pumped oil over the side. They do just... Totally uh, destructive industry uh, when when I was living there. So I had no respect for fishermen.
0: Had you had any connection with orcas? Had, had you known about killer whales much before this thing started with skin?
1: And no, it was about that time that I, I started discovering that. So I really didn't, uh, you know, I'd see them. I saw them when I was a child, but uh, you know, there wasn't any connections or anything.
0: One of the things that you said last night that really struck with stuck with me was that you 're working with governments now. What is it like having switched from outlawed law enforcement?
1: Well, we started this back in two thousand with an alliance with the Galapagos Park uh, Rangers and the Ecuadorian Federal Police so uh we uh, pre- we presented them with a patrol boat and since then we've uh, set up an AIS system that costs us a million euros to monitor everything all the traffic within the park uh we provide a canine unit to uh sniff out uh, wildlife products in and out of the of the country and uh uh we give it pro- provide lawyers to give advice to prosecutors and uh you know for going after the poachers uh in 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 the Galapagos so for 18 years we've had a successful uh partnership with Ecuador on that and so now we've expanded it to uh, uh Gabon and Liberia Santomi, uh Tanzania Peru uh, Mexico uh, Dominica and Costa Rica
0: wow and what has it been like? How, how have other countries started viewing you now that you're law
1: enforcement? Has that changed things? Yes and no. It all depends. I mean, the big countries like Japan and uh, Norway and all these guys, you know, they you know we don't get much sympathy from them. I mean, they're the biggest criminals of all, really. Uh, but what happens is a lot of the African countries are getting very desperate because... Uh, they didn't have the means to stop poaching in their waters, so we provided them with the means. But we don't have the authority, so they provide us with the authority. So it's a combination of our vessels, our volunteers, and their, their military authority. You know, governments have monopolies on violence. You know, so nobody can oppose, go out there, oppose anything violently, for example, uh, if you're not a government entity. So we don't, that's, you know, we never carry guns and, you know, it wouldn't make, it, we, in fact, if we ever did carry guns, we'd probably be getting uh, serious trouble. But if we carry people who do carry guns, who actually have the authority of their government behind them, then that, uh, that makes a big difference.
0: That just strikes me as just an amazing shift, like well, uh, kind of a momentous not, change in, in a lot of ways.
1: Not really, because we're, we've never been a protest organization. We're an interventionist organization. Uh, So Sea Shepherd is an anti-poaching organization, so uh, we're going to use uh, the strategies and tactics that are going to work the best for intervening against uh, poaching. No more Mr. Passive Resistance. He's out to kick some butt.
0: Can you talk about how Sea Shepherd came about? You know, the the early days of it, leaving Greenpeace and and switching over with Sea Shepherd.
1: I left Greenpeace in 1977, and I set up a Sea Shepherd. That was in 1977, and uh, because I felt there was a need for intervention, not protests. I, I've never been a protester. To me, it's a submissive sort of thing, like please, 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 don't kill the whales, and kill them anyway, and there's nothing you can do about it, you know. So it's just always like begging and being submissive. So I think that we had to be more aggressive. I call what we do aggressive nonviolence. We've always been nonviolent, but we're aggressive. And that's why, in our flag, that's why we have the shepherd's staff uh, with the trident. And uh, so it's an, uh, it's an effective tactic, I think. And we're proud of our record that we've never caused a single injury to a single person in our entire 41 years of operations.
0: I remember you telling me that the that Greenpeace were the Avon ladies of the environmental <laughs>
1: Well, that was because in 1986, after we had sunk those vessels in Iceland, I was doing a talk show, a uh, Dave Barrett show, on CKNW in Vancouver, and somebody called in a bomb threat to protest my violence, which I thought was somewhat bizarre, <laughs> which again plays right into my idea that humanity is insane. Uh, so we had to evacuate the radio station, and uh, you know the reporters were covering it. One of them said, Greenpeace has just said that you're that you're a terrorist, what's your what's your response to that? And I didn't want to get into a big thing with Greenpeace, so I just sort of dismissed it by saying, ah, well, what do you expect from the Avon ladies of the environmental movement anyway? And they've never forgiven me for that, but uh, now that was in reference to them knocking on everybody's door asking for money.
0: <laughs> the Avon lady. If you don't know her, you should. Now, ages ago, you had... One of your ships, for some reason I think it was like a submarine, that, but it probably wasn't, on Granville Island. And I met you there when you disembarked. Well,
1: and- We had a miniature submarine. Yeah, it was a, a two-man submarine.
0: Okay, so I'm not losing my mind, because yeah. I thought I saw a submarine with you. And you told me that there were three aspects to catching media attention that you would learned them at SFU. I think it was sex, four. violence, oh, was and four. controversy. The-
1: sex, scandal, violence, and celebrity. Okay. So every story has to have one of those elements. If you have all four, you've got a super story.
0: Yeah. And you talked about that was how you ended up going for Bridget Bardot for sealant.
1: Well, that was while I was with Greenpeace, yeah. But ever since, we used a lot of celebrities for that very reason. Uh, I think the best example was when we did the wolf campaign in, in British Columbia in 84, um, because we had the perfect story, we had all four elements. Uh, they were shooting wolves from helicopters and threatening to shoot us if we intervened. So we had the violent element down. Uh, the minister of Edu- uh, the minister of environment, Anthony Brummett, uh, was, took a bribe from the big game hunting association. So we had the scandal. So I recruited Bo Derrick as our spokesperson there, and you know, so that gave us the celebrity and the sex side of it. And I mean, I remember at the press conference, somebody said, well, you know, you got Bo Derrick as your spokesperson. This is really stupid. Why would you have her there? I said, because if I had the best wolf biologists in the world, Dr. David Mech or Dr. Gordon Haver, it'd be an empty room. Nobody'd be here, would they? But because she is the spokesperson, all these TV cameras here will be the front page of your story. Tomorrow There's not a goddamn thing you can do about it, is there? You know, so you can dictate that where the story is, because that's the weakness of the media. You know, you know, it's that whole thing. If it bleeds, it leads, you know, whatever. you got to have that kind of drama. Uh, that's the original idea of Bob Hunter. You know, when he, he talked about mind bombs, that was the like the 1960s, early 1970s version of going viral, uh, is that you plant an image in people's heads. And Bob once said, if it takes standing our heads and acting like clowns to get the attention of the media, then, well, that's what we're going to do when people say, you know, you guys are a bunch of media manipulators, we go, yeah, just like Coca-Cola and anybody running for prime minister.
0: (sighs) When uh, Pamela Anderson was there with Martin Sheen, I think one of the funniest things about watching that press conference was everybody was expecting her to know nothing, and she fielded every question like a pro.
1: Oh, she's pretty smart.
0: Yeah, and she was just awesome. And I I was watching the reporters actually get disappointed that she was picking up the questions that they thought all the Alexander Morton could answer.
1: No, she's pretty smart, and uh, she's been uh, with us for, for a long time. Well, here's a good example. is that, uh, One of the animal rights groups invited her to France to talk about foie gras and the torturing of uh, you yeah. know geese. And uh, so she goes to the French legislature. Place is packed, so packed that the reporters are having fistfights uh, trying to get access to her. And the next uh, week, there was a discussion in the legislature on the Constitution. There was nobody there. See, so. That's the nature of the media. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, as a Canadian, have come to France to voice my opposition to an industry that is equally as cruel as the baby seal massacre.
0: Well, we'd actually talked to her about uh, narrating Granny at one point, mm-hmm. and then she went off to Europe.
1: Well, I wrote a I wrote a um, a speech uh, to uh, the Russian government to Vladimir Putin on uh, on orcas and transport of whale meat and everything through the capture of orcas and transport of whale meat. And uh, I'm not going to be able to talk to Putin, but she went to Russia and delivered the speech, so they listened to her, you know.
0: Wow, what did you cover with orcas in that? I'm curious. Well,
1: talking about the fact that they were capturing orcas and uh, the, you know, trying to put an end to the orca capture stuff, and you know, they made a lot of promises to her. But uh, I do notice that the transport of whale meat over the top of Russia from Iceland to Japan stopped after that.
0: That's amazing. Can you talk? So
1: here's the thing: is that governments will you know especially look look at trump's a good example he'll talk to kanye west and kim kardashian but he won't talk to anybody else who's got any credibility and that's just the, the insane nature of uh, of the media i mean trump is right in one thing when he talks about fake news but it's not in the way he says it is the mainstream news uh the real problem is what they don't cover not what they cover is that uh they're very selective on you know, So they ignore a lot of real environmental issues. They ignore climate change issues. They ignore a lot of things. Uh, so that's the real, I think, the real uh, fault with uh, mainstream media is what they don't talk about.
0: One thing that's always fascinated me about people's response to you, and, and again, you've mentioned this to me before, um, about how in some places you're a hero, in some places you're a villain, in some places you're a criminal, now in some places you're the law. Can you talk about why the different perceptions in different places?
1: Well, I don't really care what their perceptions are, so I never really think about it too much. I used to joke that we were the ladies of the night of the uh, conservation movement because people may agree with us, but they don't want to be seen with us in the daytime. So, you know, we expect to get all that kind of ostracism and everything like that, but we don't do what we do for for this group or that group of people. We don't have any political agenda. And uh, we're extremely biocentric in our viewpoint, so we're not part of that anthropocentric mythology, which uh, everybody, you know, which the human race seems to live within that perspective. Uh, it's all about us and everything that we do, and uh, that's what's all important. Not to worry. I have a permit. This just says I can do what I want.
0: Can you talk about how Canada's treated you?
1: Well, Canada's. Uh, well, I can't go to Canada, even though I have a Canadian citizenship. Still, oh no, because uh, they'll arrest me and send me to Japan, because I, Japan has asked that I be extradited to Japan. So I can't, I can't go there without being arrested. And they've made that very clear to me. That, so you've uh, got
0: your passport back for Canada. I got
1: my passport, but I can't go to Canada.
0: Wow, I didn't realize that. Because yeah. we interviewed Elizabeth May. One of the things that came up was her trying to get your passport back. Well, she was I very, couldn't... she
1: was very helpful in doing that.
0: But I couldn't believe the government could remove a Canadian passport from a Canadian citizen.
1: Well, the whole thing is, when I was arrested in Germany, the Germans took my American passport and my Canadian passport. Uh, When I left Germany, I actually traveled right around the world from Germany to American Samoa without any papers at all. And I got to American Samoa. But it wasn't until like, oh, it was February, of uh, because I left Germany in late July. And in February the next year, I... Uh, a reporter from um, uh, Spiegel came to uh, the boat in Tasmania and he gave me my American passport because the Americans had given my passport to my lawyer, but the Canadians wouldn't give the passport. They kept it. So when I tried to get my passport back from Canada, uh, they wouldn't give it to me. And they said, well, you have to apply to get a new passport and uh, uh, because of a lost passport. I so it's not lost. You have it. So why can't I have my passport? But they said, well, you have to apply. So I applied, and nothing happened. You know, months and months went by. I never got my passport. And then uh, I get in touch with the Canadian uh, embassy in Paris, and they said, well, uh, you know, it's under extra surveillance and extra security. There's a lot of questions to be asked. And three months later, I go back, and then I said, well, how long does it take you to to get these questions answered, whatever these questions are. And nothing was going anywhere. And then Elizabeth May went in and talked to the immigration minister and said, what the hell is going on here? And, and I got it a couple weeks later.
0: Okay. Did you guys say you wanted your car back or you wanted it impounded? Uh, we, we want
1: the car back, please. Oh, see, that's, that's kind of funny because uh, what happened was I, ac- I accidentally sent your car to, uh, to the impound.
0: But Canada's prepared to you. So why is Canada prepared to extradite you and the US isn't? Like why is hmm? why is Canada prepared to extradite you to Japan but America isn't?
1: Well, I couldn't come into the U- the US when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State because she said that she was gonna send me to Japan. Uh, So, but John Kerry allowed me to come in. Now, I couldn't come in now, but here's how this works with the red list, is that if you're in the country, say if I was in Canada, or now that I'm in the U.S., I cannot be arrested under the red list. It's only uh, enforceable upon entry into the country. So if I leave the U.S. and come back, then I can be arrested by the U.S. and sent to Japan. But since I came in with the support of the Secretary of State, then I was all allowed to come in here. But if I I was in Canada right now, they couldn't touch me. But if I cross the border into Canada, they can arrest me. Wow.
0: Yeah. Is there anything that can be done to fight... The red list? Is there anything?
1: Well, Costa Rica has dropped me now, and to show you how political it is, is that uh, they dropped me a couple of weeks after the new government got elected, and the new environment minister called me up and apologized for the fact that I was on the red list, and now I'm no longer on the Costa Rican list, but I'm still on the Japanese one. And now it's under investigation by a European Parliamentary Committee and by the uh, Inter American Commission on Human Rights, but that just takes like forever, you know, so it's hardly a priority. But in it 's Interpol that has to drop it, and uh, you know we're working with Interpol at the same time, but uh, it's all there's so much corruption in Interpol too, you know because they, uh, they're not supposed to act on political on a political agenda, and this is is very political I mean the Red List is for serial killers, war criminals, major drug traffickers, and I'm the only person in history to be put on there for conspiracy to board a whaling ship you know didn't even do it, just conspiracy to board a whaling ship. And uh, so we'll see where see where that goes. But it's a way of keeping me from from traveling. But their, all their attempts to destroy Sea Shepherd didn't work because, you know, you can stop a, an individual, you can stop a, an organization, but you can't stop a movement. And Sea Shepherd is a movement in 42 different countries. So, you know, even if they were to shut us down in the U.S. Well, they shut us down in Canada because um, back at, way back in the 80s, uh, Canada told us that we, we couldn't have tax status because... We were an uncharitable organization. <clears throat> and I said, well, uh, they sat me down. They said, are you opposed to the killing of seals in Canada? And I said, yes, well, that's an uncharitable activity because the Canadian government supports that. And if you if you are opposed to anything that the Canadian government supports, then that's an uncharitable activity. So almost every environmental group has pulled had their charitable status pulled in Canada.
0: Yeah, it's been amazing. In order to protect their charitable status... Suzuki had to step down from the Suzuki Foundations for Berman Left Forest Ethics. All of the leaders of these organizations had to leave so they wouldn't be declared political. And they could keep fundraising for research purposes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the new government of Canada is just as the old government. That's no difference, really.
0: Didn't really see that coming.
1: Well, I did. They're pretty... (laughs) What I find uh, amazing is my family is... uh, you know we don't probably don't get more canadian than i am i mean my my family came to acadia in uh in the in the 1500s you know so we got a uh, you know an ancestor going through prince edward island in nova scotia from 1550 all the way up until now and everything so we're you know it's a long canadian uh history although i have a relative uh alexa doron who is famous because he was actually deported from canada by the british and then fought his way back and reclaimed his land, so he's quite famous for that. It was during the expulsion of the Acadians at that time. So, um, you know, just because you're born in Canada or you've got your eighth or ninth generation Canadian doesn't give you any security from the Canadian government.
0: Can you talk about what you'd like to see happen and what we need to do to save this planet? Because you, there are some things that you say that I just think are so important.
1: Well, at the Climate Change Conference 2015, uh, first of all, we had to fight to get the oceans on the agenda. It wasn't even mentioned. You know, the ocean is probably the most significant factor when it comes to climate change, but nobody wanted to talk about it. And so what I said there was that uh, we need to give the ocean the opportunity to repair the damage that we've done to it. And the only way to save the ocean is, first and foremost, to have a complete and total moratorium on industrialized fishing for the next 50 years. There are 10 million fishing boats out there, 4 million of them are illegal, and uh, we just have to shut it all down. The ocean needs 50 years to recover from from this damage. If not, according to Dr. Boris Worm, Dr. Daniel Pauley, uh, by 2048, and I think they're being very optimistic, there won't be a fishing industry because there won't be any any fish at all. The decline of the fisheries is, is, is just incredible. There isn't a single sustainable fishery out there. And it's just constantly divvy and diminished every, every year. There's too many people and not enough fish.
0: You used a great term the other night for that, kapu?
1: Yeah, well, that's a, the Polynesian shamans had this term called kapu, which is uh, a place would be declared kapu or off-limits for fishing for 20 years to allow the fish to return. And, and uh, it was a death penalty if you were found fishing in those areas because they realized that if the fish disappeared, they would disappear. So their entire survival is dependent upon having that capu system, which we, of course, nowhere in the world today know the fish aren't safe anywhere.
0: What do you try and get people to do? Like what, in terms of getting the message out? What's the best thing to let people know? To
1: don't eat fish. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. If, I don't really know if we can get the message across because the writing is on the wall whether it be climate change or pollution, plastic pollution, all the problems and everything. And it's clearly right there in front of everybody, but everybody's in a willful willful denial. It's not in their short-term interest to be concerned about it. You know, humans have this incredible ability to adapt to diminishment. As things become more diminished, they just accept it. You know, the fact is, in the 60s, the very idea of drinking uh, water out of plastic bottles and paying that kind of money for it would have been completely insane. And yet here we are doing it. So as a fish species disappeared, we forget about it, move on to something else. And uh, that's this ability to, uh, you know, it served us well, you know, when you're living out there and uh, there's a hunting gathering thing and you, this wasn't there and you had to adapt to this and everything. But today it could be the uh, could be our our undoing. And we have very little memory, we forget where we came from, and we have no vision at all. So we have, nobody gives really much thought to the future. What's this world going to be like in, in 100 years, 200 years? To be a real conservationist, you have to look ahead a million years and say, well, what's the planet going to be like because of what we're doing now, one million years from now? And uh, so it's, but people just don't think that way.
0: Has anything about your fight changed Having a two-year-old, has that changed how you're
1: approaching? Well, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that uh, I'll be able to raise a, a child with an understanding of a biocentric point of view and that uh, he'll be a survivor, which he's going to have to be uh, within this generation because this is going to be probably the most significantly dangerous generation in many, many <laughs> millenniums, really. Uh, will we survive uh, to, to 2100? That's going to be the real real challenge. And I want to make sure that he has all the educational, uh, you know, advantages to be able to, uh, to adapt to that. And the first thing that we have to do is to learn to look at the world from a biocentric point of view, that the fact that we're interdependent with all other species, that we have to live within the context of the laws of ecology, the laws of diversity, the law of interdependence, the law of finite resources. Because right now what we're doing is we're stealing the, the, the carrying capacity of other species and they have to diminish so we can have more and more of what was theirs. And we forget that we're part of that. I always like to put it to uh, tell people that it's like uh, every spaceship, the Earth is a spaceship, and every spaceship has a life support system, that provides us with everything we need. And that life support system is run by crew members. And we humans are not crew members. We're passengers having a great time amusing ourselves, but we're not the crew members. But what we are doing is killing off the crew members. And there's only so many crew members you can kill off before the machinery begins to break down and we're no longer able to support ourselves. Uh, phytoplankton, for example, if phytoplankton disappears, we're all dead. Nobody lives on this planet without phytoplankton. Yet there's been a 40 percent diminishment of phytoplankton since 1950, and the average person didn't even know, doesn't even know what a phytoplankton is. You know, so uh, there's so many species that are key species that if they if they are removed, then you know it's like dominoes. Everything comes crashing comes crashing down. But uh, humans have this idea that we're the only species that matter. That's the anthropocentric. Uh, perspective, that it's, it's where all that matters, so it doesn't really matter about any other species. I said a few years ago that worms and trees and fish and insects are more important than people, and you know Fox News attacked me on that, saying that it was outrageous, and how could I say something so extremely outrageous? And I said, well, because it's true. Uh, if they disappear, we can't survive. If we disappear, they'll do just fine. So they're more important ecologically than we are or ever have been.
0: If you're looking for the most important living creatures on the planet, well, here we are. I've wondered if the way to certainly save some of the certain species like orcas is to fight on the issue of personhood and rights. If you've thought much about.
1: Well, that goes back really to the 60s uh, with Professor Stone's uh, Should Trees Have Standing? Uh, You know, that uh, non humans should have rights under law and uh that has been argued successfully in the case of chimpanzees in various countries and in india i think even in the us there's a, a precedent there but uh yeah that's so oh, that's certainly something that's worth uh worth pursuing and uh, well canada just passed a law banning uh captivity of orcas so that's a good that's a good thing that just happened last week
0: well when you talked about that orca who made a cho- sorry, not the orca, the the whale, sperm, the, sperm whale, the sperm whale that made a choice to save your life, just almost every single person I've spoken to, who spent any time around whales, has come to the conclusion they know things that they can't possibly know, right? That there's, that there's a level of intelligence there that we haven't got a handle
1: on. Well, what is intelligence? You know. Um... The intelli- we, Intelligence to us is what we define intelligence to be because our entire intelligence is based in eye-to-hand coordination. You know, if it has tools, it's intelligent. Um, you know, I was arguing with this Norwegian whaler about that, and he says, But Watson, you say that whales are more intelligent than people. This is a stupid, stupid thing to say. How could you say anything so stupid? And I said, Well, because I measure intelligence by the ability to live in harmony within our ecosystem and he said well by that intelligent cockroaches are, or no by that criteria cockroaches are more intelligent than we are i said george you're beginning to understand what i'm trying to tell you <laughs> you know because almost everything is intelligent within the context of the other environment you know it's uh what we me- it's how we measure intelligence i mean why would a, a whale or a dolphin which have bigger more complex brains than us why they don't have no need for tools they don't have to wear clothing they don't have to worry about transportation they don't have to worry about long distance communications they have all of that so they're they're actually absolutely perfectly adapted after 46 million years of evolution they're perfectly adapted to the ecosystem that uh, that they live in we are not that adapted to the ecosystem that we live in you know we need all of these extra things in order order to order to survive
0: yeah just the idea that a sperm whale would make that choice for you and the idea that it, there's story after story about humpbacks breaching seeing a kayak beneath them and basically torquing
1: themselves in impossible positions to avoid hurting those people well it's all the workers are the same thing is that i don't think it's because they like us i think it's because they understand what we are and we're dangerous and therefore, to stay on the on the right side of us, why did Tilikum kill three people? Because Tilikum's insane. You know, you don't walk through a maximum security prison yard during exercise time and turn your back on the prisoners. You're gonna get you're gonna get attacked. So, uh, so Tilikum was driven to insanity by the conditions that were imposed on, on him. And uh, but so so it shows that they're quite capable of killing if they want to. But uh, in the wild. I think they make the decision not to do that.
0: Yeah, I I find that fascinating. I find just that there's a level of empathy there. I mean, I keep hearing... Maybe. I don't think
1: it's empathy. You don't think it's empathy? I don't think it's empathy. I think it's uh, it's, a question of survival. I think they understand what we are. They've seen what we've done to them. And, uh, you know, it's like peaceful coexistence, really, that's what they're... Because they know, look what... If if an orca were to attack and kill a human being, we'd wipe them out. And they know that. Just they would, we we treat them like sharks, and even sharks, when you consider, are, are pretty uh, harmless because uh, we have got a hundred million people a day go into the ocean, and how many shark attacks do we have every year? Five, usually about a mistake. Uh, I mean, we're like fatalities, and usually because it's mistaken identity. They, you know, we look like seals from the from the bottom and everything. But um, you know, but look, we would do to the orcas what we do to the sharks if the orcas were to do that to us.
0: Oh, man. I remember Rob Stewart writing that more people were killed by falling pop machines than they're fil- killed by sharks.
1: And- but, but, you know, we've made them into these monsters. Now and when We kill a we kill hundred million of them, and we're the real monsters. But, mo- you know, the thing with being a monster is that you don't know you're a monster. Hmm. Yeah. You didn't ask for reality. You asked for more teeth. I never asked for a monster. Monster is a relative term. To a canary, a cat is a monster.
0: We're just used to being the cat. You wrote a really lovely uh, eulogy piece about Rob Stewart. Can you talk just a little bit about sure. what it was like to work with him?
1: Well, he came to us in 2002 and asked if he could come on our trip down to Costa Rica. And we, and he came on board. And uh, it was during that incident that we had that encounter with, with, with the poacher. Uh, he was extremely passionate about, uh, sh- about sharks. And... Um, You know, he's an example of how one person can make a. uh, He was an example of how one person can make a. uh, You know, can can accomplish something by uh, just being motivated by his own passion, and uh, how so one person can change the world in that way. So what he did was. probably convert more people than anyone into you know looking at sharks from a completely different perspective and that's what I say that to everybody is that you know find out what you're passionate about and go for it because the David Wingate the Bermuda storm petrel a, a little bird is not extinct because of Diane Fossey, we still have mountain gorillas in Rwanda uh, so individ- I can't think of anything more noble than that because one person has lived a species has survived or an ecosystem has been protected
0: Awesome, thank you so much. Thanks for checking out scanna If you like the show, please spread the word. Subscribe to our newsletter and our media magazine. This is our YouTube channel for cool bonus material. And if you're on iTunes, please click that subscribe button right now so we can get more sponsors and you don't miss upcoming episodes with awesome guests like Peter Voloban, author of The Inner Life of Animals, and our friend Jason Colby talking about the history of orca capture in the Pacific Northwest in his essential book, Orcas, How We Came to Know and Love the Ocean's Greatest Predator. And if you'd like to help us make more podcasts more often, Please join our pod at Patreon.com. We're updating our membership tiers to come up with newer and cooler benefits for all of our Patreon producers. If this show didn't work for you, I'm Joe Rogan, and this was the Joe Rogan Experience with whales. And now, what else could we end off with but a poem I wrote about the Sea Shepherd a long time ago for that comedy group I was telling you about, Local Anxiety true story. The Sea Shepherd is committed to nonviolence, so they came up with a new kind of weapon to battle whalers. It was a cannon, but instead of firing cannonballs, it fired pie filling. I thought this was the funniest thing I'd ever heard and wrote this poem about it. The poem ran in the Sea Shepherd's newsletter and was illustrated by a guy named Burke Breathed, and featured a cartoon character he created named Opus the Penguin. This poem was performed live in Victoria last year with Mike McCormick from the always-awesome Arrogant Worms. It's called Operation Desert Storm. I've been fascinated with orcas pretty much forever. Yeah, and the guy who turned me on to whales. A guy named Paul Watson I was interviewing Paul Watson, became a huge fan of the Sea Shepherd. And one of the things that I love about the Sea Shepherd is they've got such a phenomenal sense of humor. I don't know if you know this, but the Sea Shepherd runs the Jolly Roger on their boats, the pirate freaking flag. But they're vegan eco pirates, right? So, what are vegan eco pirates gonna do for weapons? I don't know if any of you know this, but they came up with an answer. They've got a cannon on the Sea Shepherd boat, the Whales Forever, and it fires pie filling. So I wrote this about um, the Sea Shepherd, Whales Forever, pie filling. This is called Operation Dessert Storm. You want to give me something like a sea shanty? Go for it. The ship whales forever set sail to Norway to stop the whalers and their harpoons. And they'd set up a brand new weapon to challenge their foes at high noon. Yes, their ship was equipped with a cannon, but that cannon packed quite a surprise because instead of shooting out cannonballs, it fired banana cream pies. One Sunday, they spotted a whaler, he was hollering to throw out the net, and the captain yelled, fire, and the whaler was hit with a shot he would never forget. Yes, his face was covered with custard and a layer of bananas and cream, and the whalers yelled, foul, and the Norwegian sailors scowled as the whale swam away down the stream. The next day, the news hit the papers, and soon it was on CNN. This new weapon was surely a danger and should never be unleashed again. The United Nations was outraged. This new weapon had to be stopped. Attacking whalers with pies was improper, even if there were cherries on top. Then the scientists met with the bakers, and soon the menace had spread. Countries had stopped making missiles and were whipping up pie crusts instead. A Pentagon meeting confirmed it. The pie race had got out of hand. The Koreans were fiddling with fillings. The Arabs had pies made of sand. Japanese pies were smaller and faster. Russian pies could get by radar unseen. And satellite photos seemed to confirm the Italians were using ice cream. The Germans had layers of dark chocolate. The French had perfected meringue. And those tricky Australians went and invented a triple layer banana boomerang. So the president called for a total ban on all unlicensed pies and protesters marched in Washington, waving their protest signs. You'll pry this pie from my cold, dead hands. And the crowd continued their cries, when all cream pies are outlawed, only outlaws will have cream pies. But whales forever kept up their patrols, guarding the whales in the seas, attacking Norwegians with fresh banana cream aiming fudge at the Japanese. The whalers whalers complained that these attacks were cruel and impossibly tricky, because each time they tried to shoot a new whale, they found that their faces were sticky. Then the whalers stole the pie cannon in a move so incredibly yellow. Whales forever launched their ultimate weapon, a missile filled with raspberry jello. And now the whales are safe at last. Their extinction has been averted because all of the whalers on the world's high seas have been covered with pie and deserted.